My name's Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. If we've not yet had a chance to meet, really glad that you're here, glad that you're joining with us. We have been, as a church, going through the book of Hebrews for many months now, and I'm excited to say we're over two-thirds of the way done. Uh, we're in Hebrews chapter 11, and, and those of you who are familiar with the book of Hebrews, you know that chapter 11 is really a long list of examples from the Bible, from the Old Testament, of people's faith in God being put into action. And so what I'll do, I'll explain some more of that as we go, but I'm, I'm really excited to teach uh, this passage today. We're in Hebrews 11, verses 1 through 6. I'm going to read those verses, I'm going to pray, and then we'll spend some time unpacking uh, God's Word together. So read with me if you would. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray together. Father, as we turn our attention to your word right now, I ask that you would send your Holy Spirit to bring these words to life in all of our hearts and our minds right now. God, I pray that you would increase our faith even as we read uh, here in your word these examples of faith in action. God, I pray you would guard my lips and help me to only teach that which is in line with your truth. And God, would you give each and every single one of us soft and, and teachable hearts. God, hearts that are eager to receive what it is that you have for us today. May all that we do be for the glory of our God. And we pray this in the great name of Jesus. And everybody said, amen. I want to begin our time by asking you just a simple question. Is God pleased with you. Not just is God pleased in, in a general sense, but specifically with you. Is God pleased with you? Is God happy with you? As you ponder in your heart or imagine in your heart God's disposition towards you, even right now, this morning, this very morning, what does God think of you? What is God's attitude towards you? What's God's emotional state toward you? Is God pleased with you? As Pastor Shane said just a moment ago, you know, today as we celebrate Father's Day, for some of you, uh, that can be a very painful thing because you knew what it felt like growing up to never have the good pleasure of your earthly father. For some of you, that may have even carried over, translated over to your adult life, and, and you, you actually experienced that sense of, of displeasure maybe from your heavenly father. I, I want to ask that very personally. You, today, is God pleased with you? I would submit to you that this is a huge question that people in our culture at large are really wrestling with. Some would say, no, God is not pleased with me, and so I just feel perpetually guilty, I feel perpetually bad, I'm pretty sure God doesn't like me, and he's got good reason for it. 
Others would say, no, God's not pleased with me. He doesn't like me. He's not happy with me. And so I'm going to run as far away from God as I possibly can. Try to satisfy that longing. Try to get that need met from some other source. The problem is it's like drinking salt water to try to quench your thirst. Might feel good in the moment, but ultimately it just leads to deeper and greater thirst. Others would say, well, yes, of course God's pleased with me because God's pleased with everybody and God's perpetually only happy and God never has a a bad feeling or is never displeased by anything. And we've kind of created this almost Santa Claus version of God in our culture. And so, of course, God's pleased with me. Isn't he pleased with everybody? Here's what the Bible says. About as clear as you could possibly make it. Here's, Here's what the Bible says. The answer to that question is this. If you are united to Christ in faith, then God is pleased with you. If you are joined with Jesus by faith, then all of the love and affection and delight and joy that the Heavenly Father feels for His perfect Son, Jesus Christ, He feels for you as well. And you can know, you can know that God loves you, that God accepts you, that God delights in you. God doesn't just tolerate you, but he actually likes you. Could you imagine that? Could you imagine that? I want you to notice, as we were reading through the the verses, we said in verse 6, you know, it says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. That's a negative way of saying it. The author of Hebrews is is making a negation, but we can also see that the inverse is, is true. Without faith, it is impossible to please God, but by faith, it is possible to please God. You can know that God is pleased with you by faith, but I want you to note the word impossible. The author of Hebrews doesn't say, without faith, it's really challenging to please God. Without faith, it's tricky to please God, but it can be done. Now, the author of Hebrews says, without faith, what's the word, Sound City? It's impossible. There is only one way to know that God is pleased with you, that God accepts you, that God delights in you, and that is by placing your faith in Jesus Christ. And I say that at the outset, particularly for any of you who are here who are not Christians. Maybe you're here because you have questions about Jesus or questions about the Bible. And I want you to note that the Bible is consistent. Jesus himself was consistent and all the other authors of the Bible are consistent that it is only by faith in Jesus Christ that we can know that we are loved, forgiven, accepted by God. But I want all of us to see this. Now, a little context. Last week, we we dug into verses 1 through 3 and Pastor Travis did a a terrific job of kind of setting up a definition of faith. We, we looked at it, faith, you know, it has these elements of hope and anticipation and, and confidence. They did a great job of looking at that. But one of the things that Pastor Travis said over and over again last week was, faith always has an outworking. Sometimes we speak about faith like it's just this thing that lives in our hearts, but, but that's not how the Bible speaks about faith. Yes, faith lives in our hearts, it lives in our minds, but there's always an expression, there's always an outworking, and that's where Hebrews chapter 11 is really going to take us. Hebrews chapter 11, sometimes it's been called the, the hall of faith. You know, like the hall of fame, but the hall of faith, get it? Ha ha, all right, sorry. I'll put a dollar in the dad joke jar later. The, the, the hall of faith, because it really is this list of examples of men and women throughout the scriptures who lived out their faith in God in some real bold ways. Like Pastor Travis said, faith always has an outworking. And let me just say this, when it comes to the idea of looking at examples in the Bible, there's a couple of errors that we want to avoid, okay? 
One error that we want to avoid is just turning the entire Bible into a big list of examples for us to try to live up to, right? Uh, we, 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 we can sometimes do that with the Bible. Sometimes preachers will do that with the Bible. They'll say, you know, here's, here's Noah, and you want to have faith like Noah, and here's, you know, Abraham. You want to trust God and follow like Abraham. And, and there's, there's nothing wrong with that, but the problem is if we only do that. If we only turn the Bible into a bunch of examples, the worst is when we do that with Jesus. Here's Jesus. He fed the hungry and he clothed the poor and he was friends with sinners. And so go and be like Jesus. The problem is, is in my life, I don't know about you, I need more than just a good example. I actually need a savior. I need more than just a good example. All the good examples that have been given to me, I've failed to live up to their good example. I've disappointed God in hundreds and thousands of ways. I actually need a rescuer. I actually need a redeemer. And that's who Jesus ultimately is. Only after we know Jesus as rescuer and savior and redeemer can we then follow him as example. Another error that we can fall into when it comes to looking at these examples is we can ignore their flaws. Oh, look at Noah. He was a righteous man. Look at Moses. He was a righteous man. Look at Abraham. He was a righteous man. Look at David. He was a righteous man. The problem is all those great heroes that I've listed with the exception of Jesus, Jesus never sinned, but all of these other heroes that we look at throughout the pages of Scripture were colossal failures. They were, they were messed up. We're talking about like all ten of the commandments were broken in pretty quick succession, okay? So, so we, we don't want to be uh, glossing over the faults and the flaws of these heroes. Now, that's not to say that everything they did was awful. Like you and like me, all of these men and women are work in progress. How many of you know you have some good days and you have some bad? How many of you know you got some moments where, hey, I feel like I'm, I'm actually following God, I'm living the life he wants me to, and then there are other days like, I think I need a mulligan on the day, you know? <laughs> so we want to avoid those errors, but with that guard, you know, those guardrails in place, I think we can now dive into Hebrews chapter 11 and see what it is the author of Hebrews wants us to see, why these men and women are put up as to be commended, as to be imitated, as to be followed. So let's do this. We're going to look at these verses, and I'm gonna, I want to ask this question. Let's go back to the big idea again. How can we know that God is pleased? And I said, by faith. And then the real question we're going to ask is, what kind of faith? What does this faith look like? And I think we can see three things. This faith is is trusting. This faith doesn't have all the answers, doesn't have all the boxes checked, but this faith still trusts in God. This faith is joyful. This faith is excited, eager to give worship and to give glory to God. And lastly, the third thing we're going to see is this faith is an abiding faith. It's a close relational faith with God. So we're going to see this type of faith that pleases God. Trusting, joyful, and abiding. Let's go back to verse 3, and we'll pick up in verse 3, and I'm going to link it to verse 6. I want you to see a couple things. Number, number one, trusting faith. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the Word of God so that what is seen was not made out of the things that are visible. Uh, historically, that's been known, uh, a Christian doctrine of ex nihilo. That's a Latin phrase that means out of nothing, that God spoke and the universe was created. And then jumping down to verse 6, and without faith it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So we see a couple of areas where we have to really extend some trust, don't we? Belief that God exists and belief uh, that creation came into existence by the word of God. So let's, let's go uh, take those in reverse order. Belief that God exists. Okay, why is it hard to believe that God exists? Well, the, the, the real simple answer to that is we don't see God with our natural eyes. We don't touch, feel, hear, taste, sense God with our natural senses. 
There's trust involved. There's faith involved. Why do we not see God? Well, the first answer is that in the garden, after our first parents, Adam and Eve, sinned, they were cut off from the type of close relationship that they once enjoyed. If you read in Genesis chapter 3, it talks about how God was walking in the garden in the cool of the day with Adam and Eve. And I don't think we can really truly even understand what that type of close relationship would have even looked like. But all we know is that there was some sort of closeness that they enjoyed, a, a deep, intimate, relational closeness. But in Genesis 3, we see that Adam and Eve rebelled against God. They chose to live life on their own terms. They chose to say, no, we don't want you to be the king. We don't want you to set up rules over how we want to live our life. We want to be self-directed and autonomous, and they chose to rebel against God. And because of that, sin has entered the world, and through sin, death. And you actually can read in Genesis chapter 3 that God expelled the man and the woman out of the garden, and in, in very uh, drastic language says that there was an angel with a, a flaming sword placed at the entrance to the garden, and so that the man and the woman no longer had that type of direct access. Friends, we don't see God, but it's not how it's supposed to be. It's because of sin. It's because of our rebellion as a species against the one who created us. In fact, if you keep reading in Exodus 33, we see that to see God is to die. Moses perhaps enjoyed closer relationship with God than anyone else other than Jesus. And he asked God, he said, God, I want to see your face. And God answered Moses, you cannot see my face, you will die. You, in your fallen mortal frailty, cannot see the goodness and the glory of God in full display or you will, you will surely die. And Moses goes, well, what? please, please, can I see? And God says, okay, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to put you in a cleft in the rock. I'm going to put my hand, and then when I pass by, you get to see my back. Ooh, Moses got to see God's back. That's all he could handle. That's all he could handle is just to see the back of God. To see God is to die. To have that type of, of exposure before a holy God, we can't handle that. However, we can see God's attributes, can't we? We can see God's attributes all over the place. Romans 1, the Apostle Paul writes, what can be known about God is plain to them. He's talking about even people who don't really follow God. They can see God's attributes. It's plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so they are without excuse. Friends, we live in one of the most beautiful areas of the world, I would submit to you. Amen? It's beautiful sunshine day today. I hope you get to go out and enjoy God's good creation, see the water, see the mountains, see the, the, the leaves on the trees. How many of you remember yesterday? Not, not so beautiful, right? I was, I was halfway through a real glorious uh, project where I was trying to smoke some ribs to the glory of God and the joy of my entire family when the, when the rain hit in full force. And you guys remember the thunder? I remember my windows were shaking. And here we have a picture. We, I can't see God directly, but my house was shaking. And by that, we can see that God is powerful and God is strong and God is glorious. And today, out with the sunshine and hopefully you can see the water, God is beautiful and God is majestic. We see God's attributes on display. We don't see God directly, but we see his evidences everywhere. Amen? One day, the Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 13, one day we will see God. 
For all who trust in Christ Jesus, one day our faith will become sight. Right now, we see his attributes. We see his goodness, his glory, his power on display. But one day upon the return of Jesus, the Bible promises us, Jesus himself spoke, that all those who trust in him will rise. What was perishable will be made imperishable, will be perfected, and we will actually be able to look upon the face of our God directly. How good is that? The Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 13, right now, it's like we're looking through a darkened glass. We're looking through a a foggy window. But then we're going to see God face to face. And in the meantime, the psalmist would tell us that it is foolish to ignore God. That there's foolishness that says, I look at all of these evidences, I look at all of this, and I just say there is no God. This all either happened by accident or, or it just, you know, the universe is itself eternal and it just happens over and over again. And it's tied to this idea of the doctrine of creation. Because much of God's power is on display through his creation. Amen? See, see when, when the author of Hebrews says we, we have to believe that God exists, and he also talks about we have to believe that the universe was created by the word of God, those two ideas are very closely linked together. You know, for the last 100, maybe 150 years or so, there's been a, a pretty strong, I would say, uh, battle between science and religion, between science and faith. We have learned more about the workings of the world in the last hundred years than maybe in, in all of the you know, human history before. We, we have learned a ton. We've, we've seen remarkable advances in science and medicine and the understanding of how our bodies work and how nature works. And some have said, well, see, now that we have science, we don't need faith anymore. All the ancients, they believed in gods or angels or spirits or demons or they believed in magic. We don't need any of that anymore. We have science. Science has replaced God. Well, the first problem with that is all of those predictions have come flatly untrue. Religion is as popular as ever in the world, especially when you look at statistics and the growing number of people who are more devoutly religious. Uh, it's, it's pretty remarkable. The second problem with that is, is I think that science tries to take too much because even people without having to get into the subject of religion or faith or angels or demons or any of that stuff, can science explain to us love? Can science explain to us beauty? I mean, they can can say it's a chemical reaction, but that doesn't really get at the heart of the matter. I think that most people would understand there are things that are beyond the explanatory limits of where science can take us. But let me just say this to you, friends. There is no inherent conflict between science and faith. Amen? Now, there is a type of science that tries to take over a place where faith in God should exist, and I think that that takes it beyond uh, where, where science is supposed to go. Science helps us to understand the what and the how, and I think that faith in God often explains the why or what's behind it. But just on the surface, I want you to understand there is no such thing as a war between science and faith. You can be a devout, Bible-believing Christian and a scientist and a Ph.D., and there are people who are like that. One is, uh, his name's Francis Collins. I actually want to read you a quote from him. Francis Collins was involved in the 90s uh, in the Human Genome Project. You guys know what that is? You guys know we have genomes? I can say human genome. He actually knows what that means, okay? It has to do with chromosomes and stuff I don't even understand. But he, he wrote a book uh, called The Language of God. I read that book a, a number of years ago. And, and here's a quote um, that he says. I want to read this to you. It says, Will we turn our backs on science? Because it is perceived as a threat to God, abandoning all promise of advancing or understanding of nature and applying that to the alleviation of suffering and the betterment of humankind? Alternatively, will we turn our backs on faith, 
concluding that science has rendered the spiritual life no longer necessary and that traditional religious symbols can now be replaced by engravings of the double helix on our altars, both of those choices are profoundly dangerous. Both deny truth. Both will diminish the nobility of humankind. Both will be devastating to our future. And both are unnecessary. The God of the Bible is also the God of the genome. He can be worshipped in the cathedral or in the laboratory. His creation is majestic, awesome, intricate, and beautiful, and it cannot be at war with itself. And so when we see in creation, we see these, these evidences, these indicators that point to a creator. Let me just give you one simple example. This is, uh, this is from a website called Biologos. It's a group of Christians. They, they hold to what would be called a theistic evolutionary perspective where they believe that, that God used evolutionary processes. There can be lots of disagreements between good Bible-believing Christians on, on how God has done it. That's where science more enters in. The one thing we would always want to hold to is that there is a creator God who is the source of all things. But they make an interesting argument. I just want to point this out to you. The fine-tuning of the universe and what would have to happen uh, for, for, it, for life to no longer be possible. This is what they say. In order to evolve in a life-sustaining manner, the universe must have maintained an extremely precise overall density. The precision of density must have been so great that a change of one part in 1015, i.e., point zero 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 one percent i think i got the right number of zeros would have resulted in a collapse or a big crunch occurring far too early for life to have developed or there would have been an expansion so rapid that no stars galaxies or life could have formed and here's a great example for those of you non-scientist types like me this helps you wrap your brain around it this degree of precision would be like a blindfolded man choosing a single lucky penny in a pile large enough to pay off the entire United States national debt. <laughs> if any of you are looking for a Father's Day activity this afternoon, right? Here, here's, here's, here's what I'm getting at. We don't see God directly with our eyes, but we see the evidences of his work everywhere. We didn't see creation come into being. None of us were there. No matter how old you think your dad is, he wasn't there at the beginning of the universe. We just simply weren't there. There, there are gaps. There are things that we don't see. There are things that we don't have filled in all the way. But the type of faith that pleases God is a type of faith that trusts that God. I've, I've seen some of these things. I've seen some indicators. I've seen some pieces and some parts. And I trust you. And I, I believe that you're telling me the truth through the scriptures. I believe that you're telling me the truth through nature. I believe that you're telling me the truth even in my own inward sense of, of confirmation, your spirit working in my heart. I don't have all the pieces, but I'm going to trust you. And I thought of a great, I think great, we'll see, you guys will tell me. I thought of a great illustration that I think helps understand what this looks like. Now, when I was a kid, uh, both my parents worked, and so I spent a lot of time at my grandparents' house uh, as a young child. And my grandmother, very religiously, loved to watch that great theological TV program, Wheel of Fortune, okay? Anybody, anybody like Wheel of Fortune or got any uh, Wheel of Fortune? Okay, yes, thank you. Like you you want to come be my Vanna White? I'm just kidding. So here's, here's what I want to do. There's a moment that happens in Wheel of Fortune. Go ahead and put this first slide up here, okay? We're going to play some Wheel of Fortune. Here's, here, here's what happens. When, when you first come to the Wheel of Fortune board, it's a complete blank slate. You don't have any evidences. You don't know what in the heck is going on. Anyone want to take a guess as to what this is? By the way, this is a real example that I pulled off of a Wheel of Fortune fails compilation on YouTube. So I've done my research, okay? 
Let's do this. Let's, let's be a good wheel of fortune. We'll go with R first. Can you put the next one up? R. Any guesses? No? Let's go with T. All right. What? Oh, no, we can't do that yet. I'm, I get to guess because I put the slides together in order, right? <laughs> let's... <laughs> Appreciate it, Sam, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this. Let's buy a vowel. Let's do an E, right? All I want from you is I'm waiting for that moment when you're confident enough to, like, shout out an answer, right? You, you get a little bit more evidence. Does anybody want to take a guess? Leather jacket. Very good. Okay, let's, let's buy an L. Let's get an L. Let's put an L. Okay, you, oh. What is it? Leather mullet. What did you say? <laughs> Someone in the first service said leather ballet. I don't Both sound like great 80s cover band names. Leather wallet. Go ahead and finish it out. Yes, that's right. You got it, right? See, there's, there's, a, moment where, there's a moment where you went from, I don't know, I'm, I'm not certain, and then there was a moment where once you saw it, you were quite certain. You, you kind of tipped over the point from not trusting, not having faith, to trusting and having faith. Once you saw it, you couldn't unsee it. That's kind of what it's like following God. Listen, we as Christians need to be okay with not having all the answers. Mystery is a part of our belief in God. The unsearchable depths of God. If you, if you ever find a pastor or a church that says, we've got God 100% figured out, run. We need to be okay with having some mystery, having some things unexplained, and we need to seek to be the kind of people that trust God. Why? Let me, let me, let me just bring this part to a conclusion by saying, trust is what pleases God. Why? Why does trust please God? Well, the, the first and very simple answer is, you cannot have a close, intimate relationship without trust. Those of you who have been hurt, those of you who have been afraid to trust, you know that that relationship is impossible without trust. To, to open yourself up. You can have a casual relationship. You know, when you, when you go to the grocery store, you don't need to have a deep relationship of trust with the person who's checking out your groceries. But if you're going to be married to somebody, there needs to be trust there. Amen? Trust is inherent in a close relationship, and God wants close relationship with us. And a lack of trust stems from either fear or pride, and both keep God at arm's length, right? Fear. I've been hurt. I've been let down. I've been burned, and so I'm never going to extend trust again. Now listen, friends, if, if you're in that place, my heart breaks for you. Many of us in this room have experienced a breaking of trust. But to give place to fear and to, to have that fear uh, come into our, our relationship with God is to keep God at arm's length. Or pride. Sometimes pride happens where we say, God, I, I've got it all figured out. You don't embrace the mystery. You don't embrace the things that are unknown. You say, I've got to have all the, all the blanks filled in. I've got to know every single thing, and then I've got it all figured out. I've got this book. I've got, I've got you know, my science books. I know how to do all of this. I'm, I'm just going to keep God at arm's length because I've actually got it all figured out. Friends, both of those things keep God at arm's length, keep us out of close relationship with Him, and keep us out of a place of trust. Amen? So I ask you, Sound City, is your faith trusting? Is your faith trusting? How much do you trust God? Let's look at joyful faith. Verse 4. It says, By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. God commending him by, his, uh, by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. Even though Abel is gone, he still serves as an example to us. Now, Abel 
This is the first of these examples of faith in action. And Abel's all the way, very, very, very back at the beginning of the Bible. If you go uh, to Genesis chapter 4, if you're going to keep a finger in in Hebrews 11 and flip back in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 4, we can see the story of Abel. Again, God has created the man and the woman. They've sinned and rebelled. They've been cast out of the garden. And then they start having children. They have two sons, Cain and Abel. And we see here at the beginning of chapter 4 this example of what happens, this story of what happens. It says that, that in the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. And so Cain was very angry and his face fell. We go on to read then, that the first murder in human history took place at the hands of Cain, murdering his own brother out of jealousy and out of spite. So what's going on here? Why why is it that that Abel is held up as an example of faith? What's the difference, really? When When you look at these two men, you could say, well, there's two brothers. They're both worshiping. They're both bringing an offering. They're both bringing a sacrifice. They're both coming before God. They both believe that God exists, and they both are wanting to honor him with a gift. Why Is Abel held up as an example of faith and not Cain? The clues are subtle, but they're there. When it says about Cain's offering, it says Cain brought an offering. He just brought an offering. But Abel brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. Those descriptor words are clues for us. When we're reading the Bible, those descriptor words help bring some fuller context into the story. Here we have a picture of a man named Cain who's just bringing, he's just bringing an offering. And really we see revealed in his heart, he really doesn't like God that much. He's angry at God. He's angry at his brother. The Lord's rejection of his offering shows just what's going on in his heart. He is begrudgingly bringing worship before the Lord. Whereas Abel is coming and bringing the very best that he has. The first fruits, the, the first portion of his flock, the fat portions, not the skinny little sickly lamb, like the best one, the one that you'd want to actually take and kill and eat to, to feed your family. No, that best one, I'm going to go give that and sacrifice that to the Lord. We see within Abel a heart that is just joyful, delighted to worship God. He gave God his very best, and it showed his heart of faith. One commentator, R.C.H. Lenski, a good old Lutheran commentator, says this, God never looks only at our gifts. He looks at what is back of them in the heart. Whether there is faith, the confidence in things hoped for from him, and the promises of grace, the conviction in regards to things unseen. Friends, can we be honest? As a church, let's be honest. Have you ever experienced that where you just kind of don't want to worship God? You ever experienced that where you, you know, you're coming to church on a Sunday, you're like, well, I'm here. I know I, maybe none of you have heard of this happening sometimes to other Christians, but you ever had that time where like, you're going to get your wallet out, you're going to write a check, you're going to you know, gig, you're like, well, here you go, God, I guess. You ever you know, going to go to a community group on a Tuesday night, and you're like, not even serving pulled pork tacos tonight. I guess I just got to go and, you know, suffer through. <sighs> you ever been asked to, like, serve in, in the kids' ministry, you know, to, to love and shepherd our youngest disciples? Like, ugh, kids, right? 
Again, I'm, I'm hypothetical people. I've never heard, I've never met one like that, but just hypothetically, right? You guys, if we could be honest, much of our worship of God, I think we probably look much more like Cain than we do like Abel. Myself, you. We come before God with, with a, an obedient, a, a begrudging sort of obedience, but we're lacking the joy. We're lacking the, the heart that says, God, I want to give you my very best. I want to give you all that I have. I don't want to just give you an offering. I want to give you the fat portions of what you've entrusted to me. Why is joyful faith pleasing to God? Why is it better to be joyful? Why doesn't God just only want our obedience? Why does he want our joyful obedience? Why do I belabor that point so much? Well, a couple of reasons. First of all, God himself is joyful. Friends, if you don't believe in a joyful God, you need to believe in the God of the Bible. Our God is joyful. Our God is happier than you are. One of the fruit of the Spirit is joy, love, joy. It's like second on the list. When God takes up residence in your heart, when God takes up a, a position in your life of master and Lord, one of the evidences, one of the things he grows in you is joy. We need more joyful and happy Christians. Amen? Because why? Because God himself is joyful. When we're joyful, we're showing more what God is like. But another reason why God wants us to be joyful is because joy, again, leads to closer relationship. How many of you just love to spend time with that grouch at your office? How many of you love to go have barbecue with your neighbor who is just a total sourpuss, right? Joy actually leads to closer relationship. We like to be around people who are happy. We like to be around people who are happy. When, when we're joyful and we're experiencing the joy of the Lord, we actually experience closer relationship with Him. And number three, God is most glorified in our joyful obedience. And those of you who are parents will know this one full well. Dear son or daughter whom I love and provide food and shelter and lodging and, and clothing and Xbox games to, would you please go set the, dinner for, you know, set the table for dinner? How many of you are just really happy when they go, fine, and then they kind of stomp off to go do it, right? Again, never my children, never any of yours, I'm sure. Children, we read about them on the internet. Right? <laughs> like a father, God isn't after us just like, okay, fine, God, I'll obey you. I'll do no, God actually wants us to enjoy the process that he's created for us by which we obey actually says in, in one of the letters of John that, that his commandments are not burdensome. His commandments are given to us for our good. And the more we understand that God actually wants good for us, the more we, we, we can understand that and bring our, our own hearts and our own rebellion uh, into alignment with him, the more joy we get to experience, the more God is glorified, the more close relationship we experience with him, and the more he's displayed, his glory is displayed to the world. So I ask you, is your faith joyful? How happy are you in your obedience of God? One more. Verse 5, abiding faith. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. I like this one. I like Enoch. Uh, you guys remember a few months ago when we were studying Melchizedek? We thought he was kind of a shadowy, enigmatic figure. Well, Enoch takes it to a whole nother level, okay? 
Enoch, there are, there are whole cult groups devoted to Enoch. There are books that bear his name, that, like the book of Enoch, that they claim would be written by Enoch. Can, it contains some weird stuff, if you ever want to read that. The, Enoch is a shadowy, enigmatic figure, and he's, his story is, is referenced back in Genesis chapter 5. If you want to flip back there, go, go look with me. Genesis 5, verse 21 through 24. But before I read that, let me just set the context. Genesis 5, again, man and the woman, sin, fall, out of the garden, first death, first murder. And then we get into this pattern in Genesis chapter 5. It's one of those chapters that says, and this person was born, they lived this many years, they had these sons and daughters, and then they died. And this person lived and was born. And died. It's, it's probably one of those chapters that some of you sinners skip in your Bible reading program when it comes up, okay? I'm not judging, I'm just saying, right? Here, here's the point, though. Here's what's really important. In Genesis chapter 5, we see the contrast between the life that God had created and now what has happened to God's good and beautiful creation. It's like a, just like a devastating refrain over and over and over again. And he died, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died. Everyone is dying. Cut off from the life that was theirs in God. But then we land on Enoch in verse 21. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah, great name for any of you expectant mothers to consider. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah. 300 years, had other sons and daughters. All the days of Enoch were 365 years. So far, it's all the same, and here we expect. And then Enoch died, but it doesn't say that. It says Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. And everyone goes, what? What just happened? Well, I don't know. <laughs> okay? Refer back to my previous point about some mystery. I d we don't fully know. All we know is that it's very different from what's happening. Everyone else dies. Their, their body is buried. They're put into the ground. But yet here's this man, Enoch, who, who walks with God. He's, he's walking in close, intimate relationship, close, abiding fellowship with God, so much so that the Bible seems to indicate that he did not die, but he was actually just taken from the earth and taken directly into the presence of God in heaven. We only see that in the Bible two other times. Later, we see it with the person of Elijah, the great prophet, was just taken from earth directly into heaven, and ultimately see it with Jesus Christ. After he died, rose again, he ascended bodily into heaven, into the presence of God. You notice, it says in Hebrews, it says that he, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. What's interesting, look, look in verse uh, 22 and in 24 where it says Enoch walked with God. When the Bible was translated, when the Old Testament was translated from Hebrew into Greek, it's called the Septuagint. It was a little bit before the time of Jesus. They actually switched the words, uh, walked with God, to was pleasing to God. When the scholars were looking at it, I said, what word are we going to use to translate this Hebrew word of walking with God? They said it's actually pleasing to God. And so that's what the author of Hebrews is referencing, that, that, that Enoch enjoyed such a close, walking, abiding relationship with God that it made God exceedingly happy. God was pleased and delighted to just take him right home to be in his presence in heaven. Isn't that interesting? Friends, do you know that we were created for that type of relationship with God? We were created for that type of abiding relationship with God. You know, the illustration comes to mind of, you know, maybe a, an electronics device. It plugged into the wall, it, it works great. It's connected to the source of all power. 
Well, we as human beings, we're meant to be connected to the source of all life, God himself. But the problem is, is because of our sin, we've been unplugged from the wall and, and life is just a, an ongoing progression of our batteries draining. But we were meant for that type of close abiding relationship with God. And not just for this life, but really for all eternity. The Apostle John writes about this in 1 John 2. He says, let what you have heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father, and this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. So let me ask you, Sound City, do you abide in God? Is your faith not just intellectual but relational? Do you abide? As you notice, I've been asking you these questions. Is your faith trusting is your faith joyful? Is your faith abiding? And as I've asked those questions, I, I can see your faces and I can feel a little bit of weight settling in because if you're being honest, if I'm being honest, I could say, you know what? Not really. Oh, sure, I have my good days. There are days when I trust God, but there are other times when I'm very deeply suspicious. Oh, sure, there are days when I'm very joyful to follow the Lord, but there are other days where it's, it's more begrudging. Oh, yeah, there are times when I enjoy close fellowship with God. I do walk with Him, but there are, there are other days where I, I just go days without praying. Anybody else experience that? Anybody else a little convicted? My, my, my faith isn't that good. It's not like what the author of Hebrews describes. I don't trust fully. I'm not as joyful as Abel, and I certainly don't walk as close with God as Enoch did. Well, if you're in that place and you're feeling a little heavy, friends, I have good news for you. I have great news for you. I have the best news for you. Because the type of faith that pleases God was lived out perfectly by Jesus. The type of faith that God requires to be pleased, he actually provided for us in his son Jesus. Think about this, Jesus' faith was perfectly trusting. When you read in, in the Gospels, when, when the night before his uh, betrayal, the night of his betrayal and his arrest, the night before he's going to be crucified, he's agonizing, he's praying in the garden. He goes, God, if there's any other way to secure the redemption of your children, your sons and daughters, if there's a different way besides me going to the cross to have my body broken and my blood spilled out, uh, I would love to talk about any other possible way. And yet he says, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Father, I trust you that this is not only the best way, but the only way to secure the salvation of your people. Friends, Jesus perfectly trusted in his Father. And it wasn't a begrudging obedience. Jesus was perfectly joyful. When we get to Hebrews chapter 12, the author of Hebrews is going to say, it was for the joy that was set before him that Jesus endured the cross. Jesus didn't go to the cross saying, okay, if I have to, Father, he says, yes, it is my delight to be broken for the redemption of many brothers and sisters so they can be brought into the family. And Jesus experienced a closer walk with his father. He abided with his father more than any of us ever have. He said things like, I and my father are one. Or if you've seen me, you have seen the father. Friends, what God has required, he has given to us in Christ Jesus. This is incredibly good news because it means that even your faith, as fickle and joyless as it may be, even your faith is, if it's lodged in with Jesus, then God looks at you through that lens and he is pleased with you. If you are in Christ, God is pleased with you. 
If you belong to Jesus, God is pleased with you. You're not going to please him by your heroic moral efforts, and guess what? You're not even going to please him by your own perfect faith. That's why Jesus said even a little bit of faith, a faith the size of a mustard seed, planted in the right source, put into a God who saves and gives us grace, is saving faith. And here's what's so amazing. My faith is often joyless. My faith is often fickle and untrusting. But the more time that I spend with Jesus, the more it actually becomes a reality in my life. I'm less distrusting and more trusting than I once was. I'm less joyless and more joyful than I once was. I'm less distant from God and more abiding and more close to Him. What's, what's spoken and pronounced true over me judicially becomes true experientially. How many of you who've walked with Jesus would say you've found that to be the case? The more you walk with Jesus, the more these things actually become a reality in your life. Here's what I would say. Spend less time focusing on getting it right. Spend more time with Jesus and watch Him transform you to someone who then gets it right. I'll close with the words from the great English preacher Charles Spurgeon. Commenting on these verses, he says, It is bliss to think that I, who in my unregenerate state grieved the Holy Spirit and vexed him day by day, am now the object of pleasure to him. I, whose actions were contrary to the law of God and the bent of whose mind was against the gospel of Christ, I, even I, who was once, I love this, obnoxious to divine anger, an heir of wrath, even as others have now, through faith, become to God an object of his satisfaction. This is very wonderful. If the Holy Spirit leads you to feel the full sweetness of this truth, you will rejoice with joy unspeakable. I feel like singing rather than preaching. And to that, I say amen. So I'm done. <laughs> Let's sing. Let's respond. I'm going to invite... I'm going to invite our financial stewards to begin our time of response by collecting an offering. If you're a guest, you're not under any obligation to give, but this is an opportunity for us uh, who call this church our home to worship God with our finances. Uh, if you want, there's giving envelopes at the Connect Desk. If you'd like to give online or text to give, that number's on the screen there. But, but make sure whatever you do as you give, give with worship, give with faith, give with joy. While they're passing the offering buckets, uh, maybe you can help, you know, if you're at the end of the row, pass it to somebody, uh, you know, in front of you or pass it around. But as they're uh, collecting the offering and then handing out the communion elements after that, let me read some discussion questions for us, things to discuss and talk about in our homes and community groups this week. Number one, where do you struggle to believe that God is pleased with you because of Jesus? Just be honest. If, if that's a struggle for you, let's open up. Number two, some of you might tend to be more naturally trusting and some of you might tend to be more naturally distrusting. Some of us are wired differently that way. Um, if you're somebody who's more naturally trusting, how might be God wanting to grow discernment in you? And if you're more suspicious, how might God want to be working in you to grow in healing and in trust? Number three, is your faith joyful? Where in your heart do you obey out of duty and obligation instead of joyful response? And then number four, the ultimate aim of our faith is eternal life with God. How much attention do you give to this idea? If you remembered this truth more, how might it change or impact your daily life? And then a couple of things to pray about. Pray that our faith would be trusting and joyful. And then number two, pray that Jesus would return soon and that our faith would indeed be sight. And then in the meantime, we would trust in the promises of God.
And as the communion servers are handing out the elements, I'll invite you just to hold on to those for a moment. We'll take this all together. Uh, but, but what I'd like to do is I'd like to read through a passage in 1 Corinthians 11 to set the table, so to speak, for what we're going to be doing here. If you're somebody who's not a Christian, uh, we just ask you to abstain. This is a, a meal that is intended for those who have placed their faith in Jesus. And it, actually, even better than abstaining, put your faith in Jesus. Extend that faith, the faith that he gives to us. The faith that he offers to us through his son Jesus would invite you to join us as one of the, those who have placed our feeble faith, as little as it might be, into God. Let me read this to you from 1 Corinthians 11. This is the Apostle Paul instructing people on the Lord's table. It says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And then there's an invitation to examine ourselves. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat the bread and drink of the cup. So friends, today I invite you to examine your own heart. Where is your faith weak? God, where do I need to repent of not trusting you or not having joy in my obedience of you? And then when, we're re when you're ready, you can take of the cup and, and drink of the juice and then stand and sing with us. Let me do this. Let me pray for us now and then we'll begin our time of singing and our time of response. Let's pray. Father, I pray right now in this very room, God, you administer to us a sense of your good pleasure. God, I pray in particular for any of my friends who are here today who just have deep hurts in their heart, uh, particularly, again, as we mentioned on Father's Day, thinking about just never feeling like they could live up or never please their dad. God, I pray that, that we would see you, our Heavenly Father, as the one who is perpetually pleased with us because of Christ Jesus, and that you would let that relief drive us to follow you more closely that great joy. God, I pray you'd minister to anyone's hearts here today who need that healing. God, for all of us today, as we eat of this bread and drink of this cup, I pray that we would just see the depths of mercy that you've given to us and that you would actually increase our faith, that we would walk out of here today, people who, who actually are more trusting of you, more joyful in our obedience of you, and walking in a closer relationship with you than ever before. We pray this all in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.